Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you, and we are excited about learning and discerning your truth. Father, your teachings are a delight to the soul. They're a healing balm um, to our spirit. And as we hear your word preached, I pray that we will receive it as for what it is, which is a gift from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, years ago at my old church, I was on the missions committee, and I remember going through an application of a missionary, I think, in Tajikistan or one of those stands out there in Central Asia, and this missionary described his ministry as he practices an incarnational ministry. And I never heard that term before. It was like incarnational ministry. What is that? And, and the idea is that just like God sent his son into the world to become a man, so missionaries should try to incarnate the cultures that they live in. Hudson Taylor became Chinese, and so this missionary needs to become a Tajik. And it's kind of a reaction against some of the old Western ways of doing missions work, where you live in a compound and invite people into the compound and try to convert them to a Western religion, the Western ways. Uh, you know, at its best, it means that a missionary lives out and among the people they're trying to reach. But there are some problems with it. Uh, number one, it's theologically dubious to use the one-time miracle of God taking on human flesh as a regulative missionary paradigm. Secondly, when taken to its extreme, it often means that it's more important, you need to live the good news, not preach the good news, or speak the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And it's almost the idea like the ministry of Jesus was he was just present. But when you look at the opening of his ministry, you see that Jesus was committed to a certain activity which he used to define the rest of his ministry. This is an activity that defined his miracles, that framed his acts of compassion. And we're introduced to this activity in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now previously, Jesus was tempted in the desert. After the temptation, he was restored and he went to the region of Galilee where he'd go to synagogue after synagogue and he would teach, he would preach. What's emphasized here is his preaching ministry. Now, we live in a day and age where preaching is often diminished, right? It's more important to be present, speak the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. I, I came across a a survey from the National Association of Evangelicals where they asked Christians, when you go to a new church, what do you look for? Do you know what the number one answer was? Friendliness. Number two answer, children's ministry. Number three answer, the worship. And then number four is preaching. So people will say that, yeah, preaching's important, just not as important as the children's ministry. Now, we love children's. We try to have a great children's ministry. But there's a problem, right? 
when you look at preaching and preaching the word, what the word does is it frames the rest of the ministry, right? If you do an act of compassion, well, Mormons can do acts of compassion. Buddhists can do acts of compassion. You look at miracles. Even false teachers can do miracles. What really frames the whole thing is an understanding of the spoken word of God. And so here we have Jesus. When he begins his ministry, the emphasis is on preaching and teaching. And now he does do miracles, right? He's in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what he's known for. And I think on a popular level, he was just this miracle worker who hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. But as you keep on going through the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus makes it very clear that the engine of his ministry is preaching and teaching. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, he concludes the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in verse 31 with this. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Right? Preaching is to be enough. Preaching was part of his prophetic call, is what drove his ministry, and today we're going to read his first sermon recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So it's a little bit of a longer text today, so open up your Bible to Luke chapter 4, starting verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went out to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set the captive to... Uh, right, to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town 
and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus preached prophetically and people did not like it. But still he did it. He was committed to a preaching ministry and not just any preaching ministry, a prophetic preaching ministry, which is defined by really three attributes. Prophetic preaching is spirit-led, prophetic preaching is biblically based, and prophetic preaching is confrontational. Now, Jesus is head of the church, and he's head of this church, right? And if preaching is important to Jesus, it should be important to us, right? I'm not trying to just advocate for a job here, but there's a reason why there's a commitment to preaching. You know, preaching is what frames the rest of the ministries. Why do you guys love children at this church? Well, that's answered and explained by the teaching from the Word of God. Why are you guys so nice and compassionate? Well, that is answered and framed by our commitment to what we learn from the Word of God. Does that make sense? Preaching is what frames the church that is very clear what we stand for and what we're about. But not just any preaching, it needs to be prophetic preaching. And prophetic preaching is defined by being spirit-led. Now look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now previously, where was Jesus, right? He was in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. Now why was he in the wilderness to begin with? Because the Holy Spirit led him there from the baptism. And when did he have that first engagement with the Holy Spirit? Remember when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, right? So the Holy Spirit began his ministry, it led his ministry, and as he is, he is preaching, the Holy Spirit is upon him, and, and there's an implication that he was probably doing some signs, but what we see here is that he was preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit in the synagogues. Now, what we read in verse 16 is the oldest reference to the process of synagogue services. You look at verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he enrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. So Jesus shows up in his hometown. Remember, he's become like this international celebrity. Well, national celebrity. All the region heard about him. They were honored by him. He was the most famous Nazarene in Israel at this time. And he goes to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was kind of a new invention. You guys don't ever read of synagogues in the Old Testament, right? The center of the worship was at the temple. But because of the unfaithfulness of Israel, they were taken away from the promised land and they were forced to uh, kind of reconfigure how they were to engage in worship because the temple was destroyed. So they constructed a, a synagogue as a way of kind of preserving their religion. It was a place where the scriptures were guarded and taught. And so uh, there would be an assembly. You would have elders of the synagogue. Uh, they would gather together on the Sabbath. Often they would sing songs. Uh, they might have a liturgical recitation of, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then they'd have somebody read the scriptures, which were written in Hebrew. Somebody would translate the scriptures into Aramaic, the language at the time. 
And then a member of the laity, or perhaps a traveling speaker, in this case Jesus, would, would sit down and explain what it meant. All kinds of, kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? All right, the church and church services are actually modeled after the structure of worship that is found in the synagogue. And so when Jesus preaches his first sermon, he goes to Isaiah, and in verse, 14, or verse 18, uh, the text says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right, so he is anointed by the spirit, the Spirit leads him to be tested. The Spirit empowers him preaching. And when he preaches, he talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He was driven by the Spirit. You see, when you look at preaching versus talking, what makes the difference is the Spirit of God. You guys ever watch those TED Talks? You ever want to waste your time? And you're not really wasting your time because you really feel like you're learning something in 15-minute segments. Uh, you have all these really polished speakers, uh, world-renowned experts, and they will, they will give 15 minutes to help you understand the, the mind of a procrastinator. Yeah, which is kind of odd where I'm procrastinating and I'm learning about procrastination to justify my procrastination. I mean, it's just like this spiral that you get into. Or, or leadership principles. And so... They are interesting, they are engaging, but there is something different about preaching because preaching is empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, you look at Jesus and all this talk about prophecy and, and you think, well, there's not really any prophets today, are there? Well, no, but that doesn't mean that there's not a prophetic ministry. See, prophecy at its core is speaking from God. It's more than just telling the future, right? The reason why they would forecast the future was to verify that the person speaking is truly speaking from God. And Jesus, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he speaks from God. And even though he had the power of giving fresh revelation, notice how he reads Old Testament scripture. You see, anytime you proclaim the scripture, there is a prophetic encounter that takes place. And let me explain the reasons why. Number one, the Holy Spirit is involved in this because the Holy Spirit provides the preacher. The Holy Spirit provides the preacher. We learn from 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you are a believer, you have a spiritual gift. You have the gift of helps, gift of mercy, gift of administration. But one of the gifts is the gift of teaching. In 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, the apostle instructs, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Right? Somebody with the gift of preaching is to speak as one speaking the oracles of God. That sounds pretty prophetic. Secondly, the Holy Spirit provides the content to preach. Peter explains in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy has ever has, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? So as, as these men were writing down these words, the Holy Spirit was working within them, using their language, using their insights, using their sources to write down exactly what he wanted to have said. 
right? Ultimately, the Bible was written by man, but it was written by God, and it was written through the agency of the Holy Spirit, right? So this is a Holy Spirit book. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit provides power in preaching. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul knows that his persuasive ability was not found in the use of his rhetorical skills or his arguments. It was actually the Spirit of God. Have you ever listened to a sermon and you could have sworn that the preacher was talking directly to you? You ever thought that that might be God speaking directly to you? That that was the Spirit speaking to you? You see, the difference between talking and preaching is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is active in this engagement right now. He gifted me to preach. He's given me the content to preach, which is written by the Spirit of God. And as it goes out, the Spirit is working in all of your hearts, convicting and encouraging according to the need. All right, this is prophetic preaching. It's empowered by the Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't work through me preaching. It works through me preaching His Word which is the second part. Prophetic preaching is biblically based. Look at 4.16 again. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll from the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unscrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Right? So he, he's given the Bible. Right? He's given Isaiah. And he reads from a passage, and actually Luke is recording kind of a blending of two passages. This might be a, a summary statement, but most specifically, uh, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, with some extra insights from uh, Isaiah 58, 6. But he is preaching the scriptures, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the central declaration of this passage is the Spirit has anointed me, right? This is really about Jesus. He's been anointed. He has been chosen to give a message. And this message has three, or I'm sorry, four elements. Number one, to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, three, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and four, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we'll take these one by one. The first one is to preach good news to the poor. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what's meant by poor. Like, when we think about poor, you think about the materially poor, right? Those who don't have enough to eat. And uh, some people might say this might be the spiritually poor. But, but I think it's better to take this as... Poverty is social marginalization. Let me explain. Like Jesus was a friend of tax collectors. Were tax collectors poor? They were some of the richest people in Israel. But they were socially impoverished because they were on the outside. 
You look at Naaman, who comes up later on. Was he poor? He was rich, but because he was a leper, he was on the outside. And the idea is not that the rich can't have this gospel, but if that the poor, the, if these marginalized are included, nobody's excluded. The good news about the gospel is that it's available to everyone. That's the good news. Secondly, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. In the original context, in the context of Isaiah, uh, freedom to the captives is you get out of Babylon and you can return to the promised land. You can go home. You can be in Israel. And recovery of sight to the blind, well, that is something that Jesus did as a symbolic miracle. Remember when Zechariah was prophesying over John the Baptist? And one of the things he said about John the Baptist is John the Baptist is going to point to Jesus and it'll have this effect in Luke 1, 79. To give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. Right? There's going to be an opening. You will be released from captivity. You'll be able to see the light and escape the judgment. Thirdly, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word liberty is a root word comes from the root word for forgive, right? There's a forgiveness of sins. And four, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You guys know about the year of Jubilee? Every 50 years, there was like this reset throughout Israel. All debts were forgiven, right? So the good news is that everyone, everyone can be a part of this new kingdom. He's been anointed to proclaim the good news to all. Poor, the poor are invited, everyone's invited. The benefit is your release from all captivity, you can see the way out of darkness. You can have your sins forgiven. All your debts will be taken away. Now, often people will look at this passage and, and, and claim that it advocates some sort of social Marxism, right? That this is redistribution. But it's not about that. It's about who's preaching. It's about Jesus. And it's about this gospel being available to all people. You all can receive the benefits of the Messiah's reign. And in verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, right? They were silent. You could just imagine him just slowly rolling it. Here we go. Ah. This passage points to me. Mic drop, right? I mean, it was just that dramatic. He's saying that the point of this passage is to point to me. I am who this passage is talking about. He is the point of the scriptures. Towards the end of the gospel of Luke, Luke 24, 44, he talks to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus has a high view of Scripture because the Scriptures point to him. They ultimately point to him. Prophetic preaching is biblically based. Jesus exposited the Scriptures. That's why we do it. And that's why we take the pain where the goal is not to preach my opinions, or somebody else's opinions, 
but is to preach the text of the word of God, to let the word of God speak to his people. And thirdly, prophetic preaching is confrontational. Prophetic preaching is confrontational. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? I mean, Jesus was reaching superstardom. He was the most famous Nazarene in Israel. He was being honored by all. People are like, would you believe that this is Jesus? He's going around and people are just saying he's the greatest rabbi that we've seen since who knows what. And, and he's going to come to Nazareth. And so everyone, they, they sit down and he gets up and he preaches his message and like, this guy's the Messiah. This is awesome. This is going to be really good for our community. You know, when he takes the throne of Israel, we can maybe start a tourist industry here. Come see the home of Messiah. We can have some reenactors who will sit down and show what carpentry was like when Jesus was young. Right? When, when Jesus ascends to the throne, you know, when he has you know, one of those pork barrel legislations, he'll just remember where he came from. Right? He's a good old boy from the hometown. I remember during my daughter's brief softball career, we traveled to a small town. And that's when I got introduced to a Homer umpire. I knew we were in trouble when I saw the umpire chatting it up with the other coaches and, and giving high fives to the other team and talking to the other fans. I knew we were in really, really big trouble when their star player hit a home run and when she crossed home plate, the umpire actually chest bumped her as before she went to the dugout, right? There was only one way this game was gonna go. There's only one way, right? And so the people of Nazareth are like, Jesus, if you're one of us, you remember where you came from. And so for him to be the Messiah, this was going to be great. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, this is also a settler community where the time of Galilee, remember how I just read that, that message, uh, that passage in Luke about the herd of swine in Galilee? You're not supposed to eat pigs if you're a good Jew. So what were the pigs doing there? Well, Galilee was overrun by Gentiles. And so Nazareth was probably a settlement community to try to push back against that. They wanted to turn Galilee from Galilee of the Gentiles to Galilee of the Jews. When the Messiah comes, there was going to be an expulsion. It was going to be their lake, their land, their kingdom. And so Jesus just preached about good news for everyone, and he's hearing this, and, he, and he's knowing that I'm not sure if they're really getting what I'm saying. So Jesus picks up the mic that he dropped, and he continues his message. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus knows that they are excited about getting more proof. Hey, Jesus, we heard about these miracles. Why don't you go ahead and, and do it here? Why don't you get this party started? 
Why don't you just show the world that you're the Messiah, and then we can have our land back. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's making it very clear, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. In fact, you'll despise me because no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I know at my old church, I was a goofy college pastor, and people still see me that way. Becky grew up in that church, and she's still that little girl in the youth group, right? People tend to freeze others at their most immature moments. They would have seen Jesus as the highly spiritual, very kind, dutiful, obedient carpenter's son. Played with their friends, would come over to their house for an occasional meal. He's just good little Jesus, and, and that's, they, they, they don't see him as anything more than that, right? And this is why parents often have a hard time taking rebukes from their children, even when their children are adults, right? The prophet has no honor in their hometown. It's hard to, to think that that role could actually be reversed and that you need to submit to the prophet's authority. And so Jesus is making it clear that you're not going to like what I'm about to say. And then he says it. Verse 25, But in truth... I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, this is a, a story that takes place in 1 Kings 17, 1 through 16, if you want to look it up. But Elijah the prophet was going to war against Ahab. Ahab was a highly unfaithful, idol-worshipping king who was leading the northern kingdom into apostasy. And speaking on behalf of the Lord, Elijah said, because of your sin, this land will be cursed. You worship the sky god Baal to try to get rain from him? Guess what? It's not going to work. No rain, three years, six months. Massive famine was coming over the land. And not just their land, it was extending to other parts. And so Elijah travels north to Sidon, which is where modern-day Lebanon is, and he finds a widow who is scurrying around gathering sticks. And she is going to use these sticks to bake one final loaf of bread, because that's all the flour she has. She's going to feed herself and feed her son, and then they are going to die. And Elijah sees her gathering the sticks. He knows she's going to make bread. And, and he says, give me the loaf. If you give me the loaf, my God, the God of Israel, will provide for you. Now, in that day, there was an understanding that you had territorial gods. You had the God of Israel. You had the God of Sidon. The God of Israel didn't work in Sidon. Remember how Naaman, later on, he takes like a plot of earth and he takes that back to uh, Syria with him so that he can have some of the land so his God can, the God of Israel can work there? I mean, that's the way they looked at it. And so here's this prophet of Israel who has a God that's across the border telling her that his God, her, his God will actually help her. And she says, okay. That was actually a step of faith. And because of her faith, God, who is currently judging all of Israel, is rewarding a Gentile with bounty. That's example number one. 
Example number two, and there were many lepers, verse 27, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now this took place in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a Syrian general. We know by the fact that he possessed an Israelite girl, that he had raided Israel in the past and actually kidnapped some of God's chosen people. Now, he was struck with leprosy, a dreaded skin condition. And even though he had the power, the stature, the esteem, and all the wealth, he had this skin disease. And what the servant girl from Israel told him, there's this great prophet in Israel. If you go to him, maybe he can do something about it. And so Naaman decides to do it. He travels to Israel, and he asks to see the prophet. And the prophet doesn't come out to see him. He just sends his servant to tell him, dunk your body in the Jordan River seven times and you will be cleansed. Now, he's insulted, right? It'd be like Donald Trump showing up, wanting to talk to me, to ask me some Bible question, and I send sweet Rachel Phipps out with the answer, and I don't see him. Right? He would see that as an insult. But he gets over it, swallows his pride, and decides, well, I'll go ahead and dunk. And he does, and wouldn't you know it, he is healed and becomes a convert to worship the God of Israel. Right? Both of those people stepped out in faith. Both of those were outsiders. Both of those were marginalized. And even though the world, Israel was being judged at that time, it was the Gentiles who were rewarded with God's favor because of faith. He basically tells them that the gospel I'm preaching is one of inclusion, right? Inclusion of Gentiles, inclusion of the poor. It's not one of exclusion. You think that I'm on team Nazareth. You think that I'm on team Israel. I'm on team God, and I'm on the team of anyone, no matter their nationality or heritage. I'm on the team of anyone who has faith in me. Those are the ones who will be included. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're telling us that God might love Gentiles more than us? That this cancer to the area of Palestine is actually welcomed here by God? What are you talking about? And they are filled with rage. Verse 29, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him from the cliff. So the idea was they throw him from the cliff and if he's still alive, you rain down rocks and you make sure that he is dead. This is emblematic of what Israel will do later on. That passing through their midst, he went away. Now, I don't know how Jesus got away. Maybe it was a miracle, or maybe he did some sort of manly stare down, and the people parted, and he walked through, right? And threw a rock behind him, 
something exploded, right? Something manly. <laughs> but what's interesting is he's not up there to please people. You know, he could have just said that and people would have just said, man, that was a great sermon, Jesus. Oh, how refreshing and gracious that was. Look how much the, the son of Joseph has, has grown. When he figured out that they weren't understanding where he was going, he kept on preaching until they were confronted because he knew that if they did not understand the vital issue, that you're not saved by being a good old boy. You're not saved because of your association with Abraham. You're not saved because you were circumcised and you're part of God's people. They would never have known that they needed to embrace faith in the Messiah and they would have been condemned. He confronts them now so that they won't be confronted by God in judgment. I had a chance to visit with an old friend of mine a, a few weeks ago, and he uh, pastors, well, he's an associate pastor of a very large church in Columbia, Missouri, also known as Mordor. Now, this, uh, <laughs> this church is pastored by, by faithful men who we would broadly agree with, and it kind of an interesting story. It exploded to about 6,000 people. People just kept on coming. And they had all kinds of innovative outreaches, right? They worked with the local art gallery. They worked with the local cinema. Uh, they even sponsored a documentary film festival. And so they're reaching a college town, trying to find creative ways to do that. And there was a counseling session where some kids, a kid revealed that they were transgender, and they realized that there were a couple of instances like this, and, and that they had to really help understand, help this church understand where they were and what God's word says on the issue. And so the pastor did a series out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 on biblical sexuality. And the pushback was fierce became a national story. The film festival disassociated themselves with that church. The cinema disassociated themselves with that church. Many people left because what they did was they confronted the local idol. And when you confront a local idol, when you go to that point of attack, you, it will be met with wrath. You think about what kind of sermons get a pastor fired. Okay, what kind of sermons get a pastor fired? Well, they're the ones that will touch the local idols. People who value autonomy and control will rage against sermons that talk about predestination. Like, God will never violate my free will. People who covet money will rage against sermons about generosity. Oh, these churches, they all just want my money. People who don't want to let go of their sexual morality will rage against a sermon that challenges them and says, listen, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who are you to tell me I'm not a Christian? Sermons that challenge women to submit to their husbands, you know, women who don't trust authority, they'll rage against that. Men who dominate their wives will rage against calls to honor women. People don't reckon with the spiritual state of their close relations. 
will rage against sermons about the exclusivity of the gospel and the reality of hell. I know my son's saved. People who are racist will rage against sermons about man made in the image of God. People who are in favor of abortion will rage against sermons about a biblical view of life. I mean, do you see it? Yeah, there's a lot of churches where people hear the preaching and they think, what gracious words. What gracious words. Oh, that's so wonderful. The prophetic preaching goes beyond the gracious words to a confrontation. It understands that part of preaching this prophetic call is to assault lies that the world has taught all of us. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And, and this type of confrontation is not done by just doing good works for the poor. It's not done by just being nice to children. It's done by clear calls from God's revelation to deal with the sin in your life and in your heart. And you know what? Sometimes when you are pricked, you might get angry, right? You might get angry. You might get convicted. But when the word is operational, it has an effect of dividing people. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? The word of truth that's written by the Spirit, spoken by a preacher gifted by the Spirit, will take the words of the Spirit and challenge and convict your heart. And so this is, this is my, my challenge to you. You might feel uncomfortable. Um, you might feel like you're being judged. Um, you might get a upset at the preacher. But when the preacher does all right, what you're really upset at is the word of God. And that's your problem. And you can either reject it or you can repent. At the core of Jesus' ministry was not the miracles. At a certain point in time, he's like, listen, I've done enough miracles. I want to know where you are with the preaching. How do you respond to the preaching? See, prophetic preaching is something that shook Israel, that challenged hearts and convicted people of sin. And when done right, prophetic preaching will have the same impact. Prophetic preaching is something that we accept as from the Lord, and our response to prophetic preaching shows us our response in our heart towards God. When the word of God is shown to you, this is what it says. Do you yield, or do you say, yeah, but I'm sure there's another verse that says something different? When prophetic preaching challenges your idol, do you get mad, or do you say, I needed to hear that? How you interact with the word of God shapes how you view God and how you submit to him. It hurts. We've all been wounded by preaching, right? We've all said, ooh, that hurt. But that is God's way of changing and challenging and transforming you to the image of Christ. Christ used prophetic preaching and he builds a church by using prophetic preaching.
Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the example of Christ and the means by which you use your word in the hands of, of preachers and teachers to change and challenge all of us. I thank you for the abundance of teachers at this church, from the Bible study leaders to the Sunday school leaders to the woos and all the other events. And I pray that we will be a church that craves and loves prophetic preaching and submits to prophetic preaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.